Yeah, that reminds me of um, in the old days at, at the old building when we had the Otter Creek uh, kindergarten there and we used the stage to uh, do the children's programs and we everybody had their own video camera and uh, the lady next to us, every time the kids came out, the camera was already on. So when the kids came out and it came time to record, she would hit it and it would go off. And then when the kids would go back off, she would turn it back on. So when we watched it, we saw all these feet, you know, she would the camera down, and then the door would open and these kids would come out and it would go off. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, now we just use our phones. Um, so, um, what I was going to talk about, obviously, today is um, uh, my story, my, uh, the facts about my life, um, which I think are different than maybe a lot of people here. Um, and then if we had time, there was a, a specific passage that I felt like has always been near and dear to my heart that I've spent a lot of time with studying and kind of have a different spin, I think, maybe than you've heard on Psalm 23. Um, so anyway, um, I may be, uh, there may be other people in this room that are like me. One thing is I'm a Nashvilleian, so that's in a unique thing these, these days is to say that. Um, it, towards the end of my career, I was by far the only person around that was from, you know, Nashville. And I grew up in uh, the Donaldson area which now has become hip D. Uh, it's very hipster. Um, you wouldn't recognize it now. It's got all the things that a hipster area would have, coffee shops, hot yoga, uh, <laughs> a lot of natural bakeries. So it's really changed a lot since I was there. But that's where I grew up. I, um, I went to David Lipscomb uh, High School which uh, you guys would, people, when I say this, people don't, they don't remember it, but high school then started in the 10th grade. So 7th, 8th, and 9th was his junior high. You know, and below that was, there was no middle schools and all that. So elementary, 1 through 6, or grammar school. Junior high was 7th, 8th, and 9th. So I changed um, in, in the 10th grade and went to David Lipscomb High School and graduated in 1980. There and then, like a lot of my peers, I just went right across campus to the university uh, and graduated there in 1984. Um, I was an accounting major, so uh, CPA by trade. Um, when I um, started looking for a job, um, all my friends went into public accounting, and I actually went with. Uh, Hospital Corporation of America, HCA, and I stayed there 38 years. So um, I had 13 different jobs when I was there. I um, started out as a financial person, and by the time I retired last year, I was the head of HR. So that's how diverse my career was um, during that time period. 
and I was telling others, I, even though I retired last year, you know, I think everybody, when you retire now, they ask you to stay longer. And I ended up doing that a little bit, which was not a good idea, because uh, I had already kind of made the break. So, and so I tell people now that are retiring, when they ask you, you know, know what you're getting into. Um, I think most of you know my wife, Laura. I met her at um, David Lipscomb University. Uh, we've been married 38 years. So, um, she's from a little small town in Alabama and came up here to the college and where we met. And then we have three daughters. So Caitlin is the oldest, has two daughters. Virginia Bain is the middle. She has one son. And then my youngest is Madeline, which makes BB and I family. Her grandson is married to my daughter, who we love uh, like a son, for sure. Um, so a little bit about specifically about my family. I have two sisters that are older, so I'm the youngest. I'm the baby of my family. Uh, I came from a biracial family. So um, um, my mother was from Incheon, South Korea, and my father met her when he was in the Korean War in the Navy. So um, in the early 1950s, um, he joins the Navy right out of high school because he'd been drafted and wanted to serve the country. So he ends up in Incheon, South Korea, somehow meets my mother. Um, she's actually working on at the naval base, so she knows a little bit of English. But within a year, they're married <coughs> over there. And my oldest sister is born over there. So when they come back in uh, 53, maybe, 54, she's in tow with them, and they um, actually took a ship back from Korea all the way to Seattle, Washington, and then they drove from Seattle. My father is from Stewart County, Tennessee, which is the um, Northwest Tennessee, Dover, is probably the closest town that you could say to where my father's from. So my mother went from, you know, this really jam-packed country that at the time was really war-torn to this very rural situation um, in Northwest Tennessee. My grandparents um, were farmers. My grandfather was a farmer, and we'll talk about that, about how that's impacted me, but so she, they were in a farm community. Uh, my grandmother immediately latched onto my mom, um, taught her how to cook, sew, all those things, uh, helped with my sister who was born, had already been born. Um, my father went back to school and eventually became an engineer, electrical engineer, uh, for a company called Western Electric, which became AT&T in its time. So, and then he migrated from there to Nashville, and that's where we lived our lives. Um, my mom grew up in, you know, she was 19 years old when the war started there. And um, um, prior to that, I don't know if you know this history, but during World War II, the Japanese conquered Korea. So 
they just like they did China. So they took over the whole country. She was um, uh, elementary age kid then. They taught. Uh, she knew she knew Japanese because they forced that on them. Um, and then at the end of World War II, um, you know the country was split. Uh, the communists had the north. The republic was in the south. And then pretty quickly after that, the war started. And it was, uh, uh, you know, uh, a war that the South was not prepared for. Um, my mom lost three brothers in that fight. Uh, her grandparents, uh, they never found. Um, so, you know, she, by the time she had left Korea, um, a lot of her family was it was torn apart. Lots of family in the north. People don't think about that separation, but there was tons of separation of family that that, and the way that country is now today, you can't even correspond with your family. Um, but anyway, it 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 um, created severe wounds with her, as as you can imagine. Um, my mother. Um, this is really hard to say, and I don't know if it's completely true, but she was mentally ill for most of her life. Um, it, um, it manifested itself in, um, in different ways. She wasn't bipolar. Um, I think probably the more accurate diagnosis is borderline personality disorder. I don't know if y'all know what that is. It, it sounds like it's not a bad thing. Borderline doesn't sound like, you know, but it basically means you've got some of everything. So they treat you for depression, and then you get schizophrenic. They teach you for that, and you get, you know, bipolar. So you're, you're, if you name, if you list all the diagnoses, the circle in the middle, and she, she had all of those. Um, I really didn't know that then. Um, I thought we had a pretty normal life. Um, my father was just this incredible manager of her behavior. And, um, and, and then every once in a while when it did crop up, me and my sisters would be like, you know, she probably, that's the way she was probably raised. You know, so she's not translated, she's trying to translate the way her strict conservative Asian family values were on us. And we didn't really realize that, and mainly because my dad was there. As my as they got older, and my dad um, um, eventually passed about five years before her, that burden fell on myself and my sisters, and we really saw it. It was it was really bad. Um, um, it it it. Those of you who've been around mentally ill. Uh, um, individuals just know how hard that is. I don't have to say a whole lot about that, but it went, it swung back from being the best mom in the world to I wish you would die, you know, on some days. I wish you were dead. Literally, she would tell us that. Um, or you'd never been born, or it just swung completely back and forth all the time. Um, that had, you know, a big impact now that I think about that on who I am and who my sisters are. Um, I would say between that and growing up in a biracial home, one of the good impacts of that was um, 
my father, uh, because, because he married my mom, our family was like 50 years ahead of the racial issue. My father always considered my, uh, that he was in a biracial marriage, that it wasn't just black and whites that have biracial marriages, it's others. And we really had no talk of, of issues. Uh, and when we'd see them on TV, we just never could understand why that was that way. Uh, I will say, uh, growing up, there weren't a lot of Asians in this town. Uh, if you think about, you know, back all the way back into the 60s, there's quite a few now because of other things, but um, lots of blacks, as you know, and not many Hispanics then, and hardly any Asians. So now you see a lot of Korean churches and so forth. None of that was there. So my mom was always around, you know, Caucasians and white women, and, um, you know, never was around... Um, uh, other Asians. Her sisters that survived stayed in Korea. Her parents were both physicians, which was um, very unique. Um, and then because Koreans arranged marriages, all of her brothers and sisters married physicians. So my mom is the only one that's not a physician uh, and didn't marry a physician. So it's not luck that that happens. They pick who you're gonna marry. Um, I have cousins here. It's funny how, um, you know, we used to get clobbered on how much better Asian schools and stuff are, but they all wanna come here for college. So something's not right there. Um, and they're, guess what? They're all physicians. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and they're all marrying physicians. I mean, arranged marriages um, are still serious. Um, I tell people that um, one of my cousins uh, that lived in Washington, D.C., uh, was having his marriage arranged to a lady that was in California, and they met and went, you know, agreed on everything. And about a month before the wedding, she decided that she didn't want to do it and didn't want to move which is a huge deal. And um, rather than my family telling people that it just broke up, they told people she got killed in a car wreck. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was that shameful, right? I mean, I can't imagine how her family treated her. But um, anyway, it's that serious. And of course, myself and sisters, we, we didn't hire our, our marriages arranged. We met our uh, spouses here. Um, so let's switch to a little bit to um, my hobbies and interests. Um, because of my grandfather, so my, I told you my grandparents were on my mom's side disappeared. So I was very close to my grandparents here. And even though my, I didn't grow up on a farm, I kind of did because I was there all the time. And my grandfather was a tobacco farmer. So in Northwest Tennessee, that's very common. Um, he made a lot of money selling tobacco. He uh, didn't drink or smoke. He uh, never connected, I don't think, uh, with what he was growing, with, with what people were doing with that crop. Um, 
he, uh, you know, had at one time a thousand acres a farm, um, big farm, lots of employees, um, sixth grade education. Um, I was telling someone the other day when I went to church with them, they wore overalls. He had a nice, um, clean set of overalls and he wore a white shirt with it and a tie. Um, all the men set up front, <laughs> you know, so um, it, it was just a different era, right? Um, but uh, I would go work there a lot in the summers. Uh, they had a farmhouse that um, had an upstairs that, that when I would go there, I would stay. It was not air conditioned. I'd keep this big pitcher of water by the bed and wake up in the night and drink it. And, um, you know, they would get up five in the morning, go to bed at seven o'clock at night. That's just the way it was. German community, so um, um, very hardworking. My grandfather was super successful with his money. He um, told all his grandkids that any of y'all go to college, I'll pay for it. Um, he had 10 grandkids. I, me and my two sisters are the only ones that took him up on that offer, and we did go to college. Um, because of him, most of my hobbies are in the agricultural area. Uh, I you know, do lots of gardening. Uh, mowing the grass is like therapy for me. You know, um, I tell people that uh, when um, when you work in a job and you never really know if what you did really got completely done and it's great to see you mow grass and when you're done, it's done, right? <laughs> you see your progress. So um, I also am a beekeeper. So I, my grandfather was, um, he had lots of bees. He didn't care about honey. He just cared about, uh, um, um, you know, them uh, pollinating his plants, which they did. Uh, bees can, you can put a hive of bees out anywhere and not even do anything to them, and they're going to survive unless some kind of disease or, or chemical gets to them. You don't really have to keep them like I do. Um, beekeeping is, um, uh, I do it in my, um, in my, at my house at Brentwood. I've got three hives. Um, and last, about a month and a half ago, July is when you harvest honey. I got 16 gallons of honey uh, out of those three, and I left a lot in there because um, I wasn't sure how, that's their food. So if I take it all, I gotta make sure they got enough food to go through the winter. So I left a lot of it in there, but uh, 16 gallons is, that's the most I've ever gotten. Uh, but um, it's real funny after you do this, uh, first of all, it's, the, it's a great, um, living example of God's creation. Some things about bees you may or may not know is, is there's one queen per hive, obviously. That queen has a court and, a, um, and they nurse her and they clean her and they feed her and they also watch her and I'll tell you why in a minute. All the other bees in that hive are females. The males, uh, the drones are birthed early in the spring, they fertilize, and then they get pushed out. 
So I don't know how you apply that to today's <laughs> times, but they have a, a purpose and a use. And when that purpose is over, guess what? They get pushed out of the hive and the guards who guard the doors will not let them back in. So they eventually starve. It's kind of a tough road. Um, but there's most of the bees in there are foragers. It, 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 they, bees have a split stomach and they, they can, when they gather nectar, it goes to their stomach and they can actually open up a valve and eat some of that nectar or leave it closed and take it back to the hive. It takes about a thousand landings to fill up a bee's nectar sac. So you can see why they're such good pollinators. And when they come back into the hive, they actually, you know, beekeepers call it bee vomit. They regurgitate the nectar and they pass it between each other's mouths all the way into the comb and someone, one of the bees deposits it in the comb. And it's sugar water at that time. And then the bees come in there at night and they flap their wings and it hydrates the hive and it dries that up and it turns to honey. So honey is made from the nectar, but it's all from the, also the enzyme that's on their mouth is what makes it into honey when it dries. So it's a really complex process. Uh, the queen lays eggs. She'll lay eggs all the way from February through December. Bees only live about 35 days, so she's got to be a prolific layer. In the winter time, they'll lay, they'll last a little bit longer. But um, this little court that she has watches her, and if she's not doing her job they will actually birth a new queen and push her out, okay? So this is the other part, and then I'll stop talking about bees, but um, this is really weird that the gender of a bee, I don't know how we can apply this here, is determined by what it's fed, the, the larva is fed. It's not chromosomes or whatever. So when the, when the bees, when a, a a larva is born and that court sees that the queen's getting old or she's not <coughs> prolific like she was, they start feeding this larva this jelly, uh, this uh, honey called royal jelly, which is a higher grade uh, honey and that turns that bee into a queen, okay? So, you know, that's what swarms are. You know, you, you, something's going on with that queen and the workers have seen that and they want to replace her. So a swarm is the old queen gets deposed, kicked out, half the hive wants to go with her and they swarm somewhere and the other half stays in with this new queen. So you're constantly as a beekeeper trying to uh, trick your bees uh, into not doing that. You know, you're trying to make sure the queen's doing what she needs to. You're trying to make sure they've got enough space so they don't feel crowded because they interpretate that was, hey, we need to split when everything's are crowded. So anyway, I, it's really interesting to know that um, honey and bees is mentioned 63 times in the Bible. Um, Psalm 119 says, how sweet are the words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Isn't that neat? Um, there are... Uh, two really Old Testament um, 
interesting stories about bees and honey and Samson. You remember that? Where the um, hive was in, actually in the carcass of a lion. Um, and then, what, do you all know another one that's in the Old Testament? It involves Jonathan. Do you all remember what Jonathan did? So Saul says, we will not eat until we purge this land of the Philistines and anyone who does will be executed. So Jonathan didn't hear that and he was tired and hungry and he dipped his spear in honey and ate it. I don't know if y'all remember that story. And then obviously, you know, all the Old Testament um, uh, references to a land of milk and honey. Has anyone been to Israel with this group? That's right, you have. That's right, you went when I did. So I don't know if you remember this, Janine, but when we would see those big, huge date groves, and literally when they ripen, there's, it's dripping. It's, there's so much you know, nectar there. And there was a lot of date honey there. So um, there were really bees in Israel. I mean, God wasn't just saying that. There was real honey there. And, and there are uh, ancient... You know, honey's been around three to four thousand years. Is the bottom line, and it's and you know, and it never spoils. They find honey now that they can actually crack open, and you can eat it. Um, so I like to read a lot. I was telling um, some of y'all before that I um, I go to the beach quite a bit, and I never turn the TV on. I just read, and I like history a lot. Uh, I have probably um, two or three thousand books on just the war between the states or civil war. Uh, I've done a lot of tours. I'm an amateur, but I've done a lot of reading. Um, right now, I thought I'd write down uh, tell you three books I'm reading, and these aren't new books. They're just uh, one's called The Blue Parakeet. It's by Scott McKnight, who Josh quotes quite a bit. Really good book. I'm on how we read the Bible. Um, there's one that, that's written by a guy named Rob Morgan called He Shall Be Called. And it, he just takes all the names of God and Jesus across the whole Bible and puts them in one book. And it's really neat. Like today I read um, in Revelation, John says that Jesus is the bright and morning star. Y'all remember that? Isn't that a beautiful description of Jesus um, and then there's yeah and then the other book that I just finished and this gets into my history um, there's this book called In Search for the Twelve Apostles and it's got it's written by a guy named McBurney and it's really neat he takes the actually the 13 apostles because they added Matthias and he traces their lives after the resurrect. I mean, after Jesus's resurrection and ascension, so um, we never hear about that, right? I mean, I mean, how many of you knew that um, um, Simon the Zealot ended up in India? You know, and there's a church there because of him. And many of the apostles ended up in Russia. Uh, Saint Andrews was in Great Britain. If you know about Crusader history, you see the St. Andrew's Cross. That's what they wore. That's because he was up there as a missionary. Um, most of their, most of them died martyr deaths. Uh, we complain about 
some trivial things, and but um, for instance, Simon Peter was held for 12 months in a dungeon where he could not stand up. So he was hunched over or on, sitting down for 12 months in a dungeon, and then he was taken out and crucified by Nero. So he and Paul were executed pretty close at the same time, matter of fact. But th that's a really good book. It kind of it tells you how amazing I think uh, the Word of God is and how it's been spread. We, we, we kind of gloss over that. Um, let me give you a chance to ask me some questions, and if we have time, I'll tell you about Psalm 23. <laughs> I will. And um, so um, Deb's granddaughter did a documentary on me that has been award winning because of her, award not me. Awards. Yeah. It is up for a national Emmy. Yeah. Oh. She did a great job. She really did. Well, yeah. But it, it's a lot of the things I just told you, and then she, hit, she just did a great job editing it. But yeah, I did at my granddaughter's uh, class at Otter Creek. I did that and brought them all home in a little jar. Yes, that's, that's a few mornings ago on the Today program, they some of the people they were showing bees. That was amazing to me. How do you, out of all the thousands, thousands of bees, the queen? Yeah. How did how did you see her? Okay, that's a great question. So the queen is all you. It, Hives are in boxes, and the queen is always, most of the time, in the bottom box. So, you know, you know kind of where she's going to be. She's a lot bigger than any of the other bees. She's twice their size. She has an elongated body. And, you know, people ask me how I do this, but I'll mark my queen. Everybody's like, how do you mark your queen? <laughs> well, I, I, there's a little contraption you can put them in, and they can't move. And then I just put a dot on her head, the back of her head. So I can always see where she's at, and you those color, the color of the dot gives you they're by year. So last year, if you got a queen, you put a red dot on there, so I know she's one year old, and then you know because they'll last about four years. So you can look at them, and then you know what I didn't talk about this, but they're going to work. They're going to they're going to try to work queens for a lot of different reasons. So I have to get in there, and, and the queen. Um, Cells uh, uh, are bigger, and you, I just scrape them out, you know. And, and at some point, I've got to <coughs> decide if I want to keep her or let her go and get a new one. But you don't want two queens in there; it doesn't work. <laughs> doesn't work. Have you mentioned about Katrina? Okay, that's a great thing. Um, and all the disasters. Yeah. So by the time I'd left HCA, I was. Um, I had worked uh, 12 different natural disasters. Mm -hmm. So uh, back in, when Katrina happened, uh, just by a chance in the Holy Spirit, I think I was asked to serve on uh, a team, because we had a lot of hospitals in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And four months, I mean, four weeks later, after I went down there, I came home. It took that long. Mm -hmm. and. Um, so subsequent to that, we learned a lot, and we developed this rapid response team that you know that I was on, and any kind of natural disaster we worked on. So, you know, the last two things I worked on were um, Harvey 
and Irma. Was it Irma? Yeah. So those were almost back-to-back. -back. I went straight from Houston to South Florida. Um, I've done, I was really in deep on the um, uh, Las Vegas shooting. That was that hospital that got 300 admissions that night was our hospital. It's the only trauma hospital in the city. Um, so it was all the way from floods to tornadoes to fires, a lot of wildfires in California. Um, and hurricanes, um, and just how, how to deal with patients, you know. I mean, you know, when you don't have electricity, you know, it, it's a big deal at a hospital. And, and, and in those early years, guess where all the generators were? Mm -hmm. In the lowest part of the building. Everybody knows, do not do that anymore, right? So, um, Katrina, um, our, we, it was a typical uh, hospital with a parking garage with a rooftop and we had helicopters coming in every 10 minutes and they would bring food and water and we would put a patient or two in there because we didn't have big helicopters and they just all day long. Um, there were uh, big parking lights, you know, up there just like, and I just kept thinking, you know, somebody's gonna hit one of those because they're just weaving in and out. And I told the maintenance engineer and he went and got a cutting torch and cut them all down and pushed them into the street. <laughs> so I mean, that's how desperate things were at that time, so. That question is about meaningful spiritual points of your life. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good question. Um, if I had to, I think, first of all, I would say that there, there are classmates that I went to David Lipscomb High School with that have come up and told me, if, if I would have known you were going to be my elder back then, I would have never believed it. Because <laughs> I can't describe it other than the way I look at it now. There were times I was an enemy of God. I mean, there's no other way to say it. Um, not in a, a evil sense, but um, just, I mean, you know what I'm talking, sense of my youth or whatever. But I think, um, I, did, I, I didn't say this, but I didn't grow up a church of Christ. So I was raised in the Baptist church, and I'd never been really around uh, church of Christ my whole life. You, I knew don't, you don't know how to play rook. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this, oh, yeah. this um, book I'm reading by Scott McKnight talks about, um, you know, the verse in James where you take care of widows and orphans and you stay away from corruptible things. He, you know, he said in his family that corruptible things were drinking alcohol, dancing, and having sex. And he said, he said, I got it. You know, you you get you, you drink, you dance, and you want to have sex. So, you know, he, he uh, but, I, but I think going to Lipscomb High School as a 10th grader, it was the first time I was around a lot of Christians. And there, there were two or three guys who I still know today that um, they were just quality people that lived a holy, godly life, 
and they were proud of that, and they were popular, and everyone liked them, and it, they weren't nerds, and they weren't, you know. So that was a big uh, um, change for me. Um, and then um, coming to Otter Creek 38 years ago. So after we were engaged, we really started looking for a church, and um, I just really, I went. I came from this very um, open background of Christians only, and I just had this really hard time with this. You know, we're the only ones going to heaven thing, and a lot of other things. And um, we ended up coming here, and we didn't hear that. And we've been here ever since. We actually even got married at that building. Um, so that was, the, I, I, I would say that was huge. Um, and then I think thirdly, about, I, I guess about 10 years ago, I really took serious studying the Bible. So I read the Bible every day. I've got a system where, you know, I, I, I start. I start with Genesis, and then um, I always I, I start the Gospels, the four Gospels, and read them through and start over. Just constantly, I read from Genesis until I get to there, and then I read the Psalms every day, one Psalm. So it takes me about 45 minutes. Um, and it, this sounds really weird, but there's stuff I read about that happens to me that day. <laughs> you know, it really does. It really does. Uh, so anyway, I, I would say those three things. I remember sitting with you at a Lipscomb football game when Caitlin yeah. was one year old. Yeah. And this, this man was a parent to his one-year-old. He had her on his knee, and he was pointing out things to her, talking to her like she was 21. <laughs> <laughs> I learned about parenting. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I tell people, I was a 90s dad, which, you know, that's when, to me, in my, that's when dads really kind of started, you know, started, they were in there at the birth, and then they just took a more active role with their kids. Uh, now they've taken it to a whole new level. You know, they're getting, they're staying home with kids and everything else. But yeah, I, 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 I um, because of my sisters and uh, my mom, uh, I've always been really comfortable in a professional way around women. Most of my bosses have been women. I never had a problem with that. Um, I didn't understand why people had a problem with that. But then I had, it was no accident, I had three girls. I think I was, it was meant to be. Um, I wouldn't even know what to do. I think, I always tell people, I think God knew not to give me a son because, um, you know, I just wasn't equipped as well as I would for a daughter, for daughters. Yeah. Yeah. You know, grew up in a small town, which I did. Also grew up in Baptist Church. You mentioned that. Our next door neighbors were members of the Church of Christ in that town. And I can still remember uh, when Vacation Bible School would come around, uh, they would invite me to go to their Vacation Bible School. And I always did. 
I in turn would invite my friends to go with me to our vacation Bible school, and they would not. They would not. And he, he let me know, we roomed together in college, he let me know that, that I was not going to go to heaven. So it, it is different if you have a group of Hopefully we're we're past that, but yeah. Um. Yeah, that's the environment I grew up in. We, I actually went this church I went to was on McGavitt Pike, and within a two miles there were probably six churches, and all the and they were all about the same size, two or three hundred, and all the youth groups of, of of five of the churches constantly did one thing together a quarter, like car washes or bake sale or whatever, but the Church of Christ didn't. <laughs> they, they, they didn't do that. So they didn't. Uh, well, listen, you know, I, I have, Sue and I have four girls, and so I have said the, the one good thing about growing up there, and there are many good things about having our girls, but the one good thing that I remember is that uh, you can always find your underwear when you go to the car. <laughs> And you have a lot of pink shirts. <laughs> um, for sure. A lot of pink shirts. So I, think, I think we're just about out of time. It's 10.53. But thank you. Um, if you want to come back sometime and talk about Psalm 23, I've got this whole agricultural spin on this. That I, think, <laughs> I think David was really trying to tell us that it was this journey of he... he and his sheep going from the valleys to the mountains up to the tableland back home and if you go to Israel you will you see that happening now and um, one of the things I told Josh because he talked about the Good Samaritan there are places in the Kelt Wadi where uh, where the Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan that are so narrow you would have to walk and step over the guy who was hurt. It, it wasn't like he was across the street or in a ditch. It is narrow. And when Jesus was telling that story, he was talking about the Kelt Wadi where they took sheep through. David talks about it too. And these the, the priest and the Levite would have literally had to step over this guy's body to pass him. So we don't get that little message really good. We think it's like, oh, I'm not going to go over there. But they had to step over his body, and that's what he was trying to say. So, Larry, I want to say something. Yeah. Uh, you know, Tom and I have known you guys forty years before you were married, and the compassion that you have shown to not only us but to as a shepherd of this church—it's just amazing. And. Uh, as Tom has told me many times, uh, that's just the way Larry is. I've <laughs> known him when he was in his 20s, yeah. that people would come to him and talk to him and he could count to him. And it's a gift you have. You. And I just, I'm wondering if because of your grandparents or your parents' love that that was channeled into you or 
or the uh, care and compassion you had for your mother, or yeah. it, you know, that's. Yeah, it's I just think, rare. I mean, my, I've, I've followed in the step, footsteps of my father a lot, and when he died and people came to his funeral, like Fletcher was one of the people that said, when they talked about your dad, they were talking about you, you know, so I think that's right. And by the way, I'm still a shepherd, even though I wasn't up on the stage, you know. <laughs> there are four of us that are still in our rotation, so we weren't involved in that, so. Larry, thank you so yeah. much.